Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is our news roundup episode for the week and this is being recorded on Friday, July 28th at the end of a busy week of earnings. Uh, I've been covering those earnings on the other podcast that I started recently, the Tech Narratives podcast. So if you're interested in a deep dive on earnings and, and more comprehensive coverage of all the earnings from the last couple of weeks, then go give that a listen. The Thursday episode that I recorded yesterday in particular had a lot of uh, earnings stuff in it uh, from across the industry. Uh, we will talk about earnings a little bit today. We're going to talk about Twitter earnings and Amazon earnings specifically, but we're not going to cover the other ones announced this week. Next week, we'll do our usual deep dive on Apple's earnings at some point. Um, we're also going to talk about two other news stories this week. One is Apple killing off the iPod, uh, which is at this point a largely symbolic thing, but uh, has interesting sort of hook for us to talk about some of the past there. And then another sort of Apple flashback type thing is uh, Adobe announced this week the end of life for its Flash product in 2020. And so long time coming, finally officially announced now by Adobe. So we'll talk about that last. Let's kick things off then with a discussion of Twitter earnings. They came out Thursday morning. um, And frankly, we had more of the same from last quarter. We had revenue declines, uh, driven by ad revenue declines. We had uh, zero monthly active user growth, so even slower growth than we've seen over the last few quarters in monthly active users. Uh, We had ARPU declining, which was another cause of the overall ad revenue decline, a whole variety of other things, really no concrete evidence that the turnaround that Twitter keeps talking about is actually underway in any meaningful sense or that it's making any meaningful progress on that front. Um, Lots of discussion about trying to convince advertisers of the value proposition of Twitter as an ad platform, uh, talking about the ones that Twitter has talked to and has commitments from and so on. Uh, But none of that really driving any kind of meaningful shift in the business in any positive sense. Twitter continues to focus on its daily active user growth numbers without actually ever disclosing daily active user numbers. Um, And there's a whole long discussion on the earnings call about this led to an additional disclosure later in the day from Twitter on that subject suggesting that DAUs are still at less than 50% of monthly active users. Anyway, lots there going on. But Aaron, what was your take from kind of following all of this? You know, I, I we keep talking about how every time this comes up with earnings, like we, we always talk about how there's a glacial product development, uh, you know, pace to, to Twitter, which I just think is the crystal clear evidence of what's going on. You can't keep holding out the same product in a market quarter after quarter after a quarter and expect anything to change. I mean, they need a different product. It's there. Now I'm not saying they have to abandon what they've, what they've already got, but you can't keep holding out this same thing with tiny little tweaks. And it is, it, it's, it's the, you know, that, that, uh, that quote on insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results fundamentally they're just not making any substantial product changes and so it's crazy to think that their that their users that their user rate would change or um that their financial prospects would change yeah and this is the fascinating thing because this was a quarter when they did have some product changes that, that they thought were highly significant and sort of trumpeted on the call and and throughout the quarter i mean they redesigned their uh, apps on ios and android they uh, launched Twitter Lite in India. So this is sort of a, a version for emerging markets that's 
lower on bandwidth consumption and that kind of thing. So they talked up these changes, but to your point, none of that's having any meaningful impact on the user growth numbers. And in fact, they, they went down in the US. And when they were asked about that on the earnings call, they basically said, we have no data that would help to explain why that happened. In other words, we've got no idea what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know why uh, subscriber numbers are going down, why you know, we're seeing this decline. And that's the most worrying thing of all is for all the changes that they're making and all the stuff they're touting, they really have no idea how any of this is actually going to affect user growth. And then the whole while they want us to focus on daily active users, but won't give us those numbers. I mean, it's just, it's a mess, frankly. And, um, you know, it must be enormously frustrating if you're an investor in Twitter. You know, as a user, I still get enormous value out of it. But I think increasingly the best way to think about Twitter is as a company that has about 150 million highly engaged users that are on the site every day, get a lot of value out of it, create most of the content, get most of the value out of it. And then there's another sort of 170 odd million that are passing through at any given point in time who kind of sign up, check in, try to set something up, can't figure out how to work it, maybe stick with it for a month or two and then churn right back off again. Um, and so Twitter's problem is it wants us to think of it as a 330 million user company and the sort of scale and everything else that that implies. And it's actually a 150 million user company making it smaller than Snapchat in terms of daily active users that are actually heavily engaged with the platform. And that's obviously a much less compelling story for investors. It's a much less compelling story for advertisers um, because, you know, this is a broad-based audience. This isn't a focused audience of, say, millennials like Snapchat has where it can justify, you know, generating significant ad dollars because it's very focused on a particular demographic. Twitter has a very broad-based audience across many countries around the world and every demographic, but it's small. And that's just not a great value proposition. And their ad products haven't evolved to the point where they're really compelling either. And so it's just kind of a mess from top to bottom in that sense. And there's just very little evidence of any kind of meaningful momentum at this point. And, you know, investing hugely in live video, uh, but that really doesn't seem to be gaining much of an audience. About a sixth of the monthly active users actually engage with any live video during the quarter. Um, you know, it just isn't doing what it needs to do to turn things around. And I think the single biggest challenge is still that they've preserved basically the same model for following accounts that they've had right from the beginning, that you basically have to individually follow particular accounts if you want to get a topic-based feed, you know, and you select topics you're interested in when you sign up, but instead of giving you a feed automatically based on that topic, it says, if you're interested in basketball, maybe you'd like to follow all these basketball players and all, you know, ESPN and various other publications about basketball and the official Lakers account and so on and so forth. And it's still this very manual process, whereas what you really want and how you get the most value out of Twitter is carefully curating a set of accounts to follow. And you can do that if you've been on it for years and figured out how that works. But Twitter needs to do that on behalf of its users and say, you're interested in basketball, tell us your favorite team, your favorite players. Okay, here's a, an algorithmic feed that's driven by stuff that's about your favorite team and players and maybe some generic stuff about the NBA as well. You know, it should be super easy to do. And yet they haven't done that. And it's still a really painful onboarding experience. And I think that's why their retention rate is absolutely lousy as well. Yeah, well, and I think they, they're they so beholden to the microblogging original core concept that uh, and, and so seemingly scared to get away from that, that they are failing to recognize that there's that that's not their core value anymore. I mean, there is something valuable, I guess, about forcing brevity on on the people who use Twitter. But the real value is in the conversational last part of Twitter, right? It's in the curating that happens as you follow particular Twitter users, like you're saying. 
you know, I, I, I through Twitter and the and the group that I follow, I, I get access to news and information I don't find anywhere else. It doesn't show up in Facebook. It doesn't show up in my RSS feeds, right? This is, uh, I'm getting a perspective that I'm not getting anywhere else. That doesn't have to be limited to uh, 140 characters per interaction. They There's a lot of innovation they could undertake there, recognizing that where they really add value is in this network of experts, essentially, that that makes Twitter worth following. Like, that's what it is for me anyway. Maybe I just have a really narrow perspective on the way a lot of other people use it, but my experience is that is that Twitter is a great way to get access to a network of experts that give you perspectives on things that you don't have otherwise. And if you are an expert, it's a great way to to demonstrate and share your expertise. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't approach Twitter that way, but you do, and you've got thousands of followers that, you know, that uh, pay attention to you because of the expertise that you share, and it's a platform for that. They are so beholden to the core concept of the 140 characters that it feels like everything that they call an innovation is just a, a tweak to that basic to that basic platform, which to me just feels really short-sighted. So, I mean, they don't have to stick to that, to and they can come up with really new ways to leverage what I think makes Twitter really valuable to the people that use it, which is, it, which is sort of tying into this network of expertise. And there are some friendships and relationships I think that people use Twitter for, but I don't know. It just that's how it feels to me, and I just don't understand why they have to stick to this this arbitrary weird constraint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think we're we're agreed on that. So, um, as I said, um, you know still relatively little evidence that we're going to see any major turnaround on that front. Um, I'm still hopeful that something can happen. It's a service that, as you suggested just now, I get enormous value out of personally, um, but I can also understand why a lot of other people who try it just don't get that value out of it, and they, they desperately need to fix that. Well, let's move on to talking about Amazon's earnings, also out yesterday, Thursday afternoon in their case. Um, again, to some extent, more of the same in a much more positive way, strong growth, uh, and actually slightly stronger growth in, in unit sales on the e-commerce side of things, um, and uh, sort of strong performance in AWS as well, some of the strongest dollar growth that they've ever had on a quarterly basis. Uh, and yet there was a big hit to margins as well. And um, this has been coming for some time. Amazon's been through a number of cycles over the years where it's uh, invested less heavily and generated some profits and then decided to reinvest more heavily in the business. and profits have dropped and I was kind of going through a long-term chart that I have that's part of um, the subscription service that I do on company earnings and uh, you, can, you can see these very distinct periods where profits suddenly fall off a cliff in terms of margins and we're in another one of those right now and Amazon's been hinting at that for a while in earnings calls if you looked at their capital expenditures over the last couple of years that was creeping upwards that's now starting to flow through into depreciation and amortization and uh, they've got these capital leases, which is how they uh, report a lot of their investments. That's really spiked quite significantly over the last little while. And almost all of this investment is going into just a handful of areas. It's going into fulfillment centers, uh, both the uh, infrastructure and the people in those fulfillment centers, still massive hiring effort going on at Amazon. Uh, it's going into data centers to support uh, its AWS business. It's going into expansion into new countries and the sort of infrastructure there. It's going into the prime benefits, which 
you know, have come over time in the US, but as Amazon launches in new markets, it's tending to have more and more of those prime benefits in place right from the get-go, which means that there's a heavier investment up front there. Uh, it's going into video and original content and so on. You know, these are some of the big areas of investment, and all of those are increasing at the moment. And so we saw a substantial increase in costs and a hit to profits as a result of that. Um, and you know, stock price got hit pretty hard immediately after earnings, after hours, um, having gone up fairly significantly earlier in the day. And in the process, made Jeff Bezos at least briefly the the richest man in the world. <laughs> yeah, brief. It was a couple hours, right? Three hours or yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But still, pretty amazing that a guy who twenty years ago had just left his job in I don't remember what it was, investment banking or something like that moved to Seattle and deliberately started Amazon in a garage. So that could be part of the, the uh, folklore surrounding Amazon is that it was started in a garage. He could have afforded office space apparently, but <laughs> decided he wanted a garage story. Um, right. uh, you know, I think the thing, the thing about Amazon right now is that, it, I, I mean, Apple is the, the biggest company in the world by market cap. Um, if there is another company that I think has the power to, that has the power to dislodge them from that spot, I think it's Amazon. And I say that because I don't think, as dominant as they are in U.S. retail right now, I don't think they have peaked by any means. I mean, I think about, um, for example, the the idea of having more uh, uh, fulfillment centers more closely located uh, to other population centers. I know there's one coming to Utah soon, and there so... If you live in uh, certain metro parts of Utah, you're going to get uh, access to same-day delivery, you know, of certain basic items. That the th- that ex- the expansion of that model is going to be uh, killer in U.S. retail, and so I think they still have a ton of headroom to grow in U.S. retail. And on the international side, I think they are barely scratching the surface. I know that they're expanding into Singapore, and that's looking like one of the places where that they're where they're going to have a good chance to really test in a in in the right kind of market, in the right size market, to see what they can do. But I, I think Amazon has a ton of potential growth internationally too. And as big as they already are, when you consider the growth opportunities ahead of them, uh, I think Amazon, of any company out there right now, has the best potential to you know to take the crown of market cap and just just sheer size and uh, dominance. I mean, I, um, you know, and I don't see an end to this anytime soon. Yeah, and it's, I think one of the most remarkable things about Amazon is the degree to which it's been able to attract investors that are in it for the long haul. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you look at Apple, for example, everybody's very focused on every quarter's results, you know, and yeah. Apple's building a, you know, a massive business with this huge installed base of iPhones that will upgrade on a fairly predictable schedule and increasing services business off the back of that and so on and so forth. And in the meantime, is enormously profitable, paying out huge dividends, buying back stock and so on. And then you have Amazon, which insists on reinvesting pretty much all its profits back into the business and generating very, very low margins in the process. And uh, and yet, you know, investors are absolutely willing to stick with it through that period. And, um, you know, it almost has this disregard for its investors in its earnings calls. It, it, it does very little explaining of what it's up to um, or, you know, and its guidance range is amazingly broad. You know, the growth rate that it's projecting uh, for next quarter, for example, there's an eight point range there from something like, I can't remember what the exact numbers are, 20 to 20 to 28 percent. 
I think. So there's a big range there. It's guidance for profits uh, goes about a percent either side of break even. So it could make a loss, it could make a profit. It won't say, you know, so it's, you know, it totally controls this stuff because it decides how much it invests and that's the single biggest driver of how much profit it'll actually make. But it basically seems to not care that much about giving its investors a solid steer on what it's going to do. And this quarter it surprised investors and there was that hit to the stock price. But in general, that stock price has just kept going up and up and up. And it's just this belief, and I think it's founded, as you say, on solid ground, that you know Amazon is increasingly dominant in e-commerce. It has a long way still to go because... You know, I think 92% of its revenue comes from four countries. So, you know, it's got a ton of room to expand a lot of other countries. India is a big one that it's investing in. You mentioned Singapore. That will be a base for Southeast Asia and some of what it's going to do there over the next few years. Um, there's China, which is a whole other interesting market. There's a lot of potential to expand its infrastructure in all these markets and therefore to offer more and more of the you know, additional services like Prime Now and the Amazon Fresh service, especially as they buy Whole Foods and so on. So, you know, there is a ton of potential there, but they're also growing very rapidly in the meantime, albeit with these very low margins. And as I say, it's remarkable that they've been able to attract these investors that are willing to put up with the short-term stuff um, on the basis that the stock price just keeps going up and up uh, on the back of the promise of, you know, continued and increasing dominance of the e-commerce space and other spaces over time. Yeah, and I think you can't be an investor in Amazon without being able to stand the cyclical nature of their reinvestment approach, right? I mean, like yeah. you just you just have to sort of, and I don't know who's the capricious one making these decisions, if it's just Jeff Bezos or if it's more of a strategy that, you know, the outside world is included into, but whatever it is, you just have to be comfortable with the idea that they might take a year, right? Where for a few, right. for a handful of consecutive quarters, they're just reinvesting. It's a funny, it's a funny reaction to be honest. Um, to to view all the reinvestment they're doing as a bad thing, as a knock on the stock price. I I, I would, I mean, I'm not giving investment advice, but but I just think that ought to be an encouraging thing. Um, Amazon is on the right track, and they've done so many things right. Sure, they've had blow-ups like the Amazon Fire Phone and stuff like that, but that's 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 a blip now compared to mm -hmm. the big yeah. things that they can do. And and so yeah, I don't know. I mean, you just you have to be comfortable with that 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 you're measuring your your investment there based on that you're measuring your investment based on the growth of the company, not on its quarterly earnings, like you were saying a lot of people do with Apple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I wrote a piece quite some time ago now, maybe three years or something, about um, the role of faith in, in, in tech investing. And essentially, every <laughs> yeah. company in the industry, you have to have faith in something. In Amazon, uh, you know, it's faith that it can turn on the profit spigot when it finally decides to do so. You know, yeah. the, you know, all this investment at some point, um, you know, they ease up on it and they generate enormous profits, and you're kind of betting on that in the meantime. Um, you know, in the case of Apple, it's that the magic and what makes Apple different allows it to generate enormous margins in a, an industry that generally generate, generates sort of single digits can continue um, and that people will keep buying it and it can continue to differentiate in the way it has in the past. You know, if it's, if it's Google, it's that the online advertising market will continue to grow and that Google will continue to capture more than its fair share of that. You know, and you can say the same thing for every company out there, but... You know, you have to have faith in something to invest in most of these companies because none of their futures are guaranteed. Um, and, you know, with Amazon more than most, the, the sort of long-term investors seem willing to, to take a lot of that on faith despite, 
the sort of lack of short-term profits and so on. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our last two stories. First off, uh, and this wasn't really announced with any kind of fanfare by Apple. It was mostly sort of spotted by people looking at Apple's website and so on and, and realizing that something had changed and then eventually comments sort of dribbled out from Apple. Uh, but Apple essentially killed off every member of the iPod family but the iPod Touch, which got a capacity bump. Um, so the, the Nano and, and other products, the shuffle went away and the iPod Touch is now the only iPod left in the range. And, you know, it's worth remembering that it's been three years now since Apple stopped breaking out uh, unit shipments for the iPod. And, uh, you know, they've been obviously dwindling ever since then. They were at a two point something million when they stopped reporting that. Uh, but, you know, they've reported, um, you know, a very large number of iPod sales over the history of the iPod. And it was really arguably the iPod that suddenly turned Apple from you know, a marginal player in the computer industry into something very, very different. Obviously laid the foundation for the iPhone, the iPad, the Apple Watch, and, and lots of other stuff that uh, has happened since. So, uh, you know, it's fascinating in that sense. But Aaron, what was your take on this sort of uh, fairly low-key but highly symbolic move? Well, it's a little, I mean, I was nostalgic for sure. I had a bunch of those different iPods over the years. Uh, I'm surprised the Nano died. Uh, or that Apple killed it. I I guess I for some reason thought there was still a peop- there's still a group of people that that merited that sticking around uh, more so than the touch in fact. But because um, uh, it just seems like the 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 number of people that would rather have an iPod Touch versus say an iPad Mini or a regular iPad or an iPhone or any of those other products that to me seems smaller than somebody who'd want an iPod Nano or even an iPod Shuffle. But, uh, I, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's fun to reflect on, um, simply because it was such a, um, uh, it was such an unexpectedly valuable product that really launched Apple to where it is and set the, I think the thing we often forget is that the iPhone is successful because of the iPod and not just because, sort of help Apple get on the map where they could produce the iPhone, but but it taught Apple all sorts of other skills that they were going to need to be successful with the iPhone, like manufacturing is the one that comes to mind, um, and supp- just all the supply chain man- management that was required to scale the way they did with the, with the iPod. They took all those lessons and supercharged them, and that's how we got the iPhone today. Um, you know, but I think the thing that to me that's so fascinating about the iPod is that it was such a cultural phenomenon based purely on one thing, which is music. I mean, I mean it was yeah. it was such a huge product and it was so iconic in so many ways. But it, it, when it comes down to it, it was just a music player. And when we think now about our smartphones and everything that they do way, way, way beyond music, music feels like a pretty narrow slice of what the devices in our pocket can do. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have ever predicted that a music player could be as big of a deal as it was, that that was, that, that was a sufficiently important thing. And maybe I should have seen it, right? Cause the Walkman was a big deal back in its day, but, uh, mm. but it's kind of amazing that music plays such an important role that it could be such an iconic device and such an important device to what is now, you know, the biggest company in the world as far as profits and, and market cap go. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's really um, kind of been a, a remarkable run in that sense. And, uh, you know, 
it very much did sort of change people's perception of Apple. And I think the biggest single thing that it did was expose many more, many more people to Apple as a company they wanted to buy products from, yeah. frankly. You know, I think until the iPod came along, I think there were tons of people that never have, would have dreamed of buying a Mac, um, you know, but who found the iPod value proposition compelling, found they were really pleasantly surprised by the user experience and wanted, okay, what else can I buy from Apple? Oh, you know, maybe I'll buy a Mac, you know, and... Um, I think it really broke down a lot of barriers for Apple and, and dramatically expanded their addressable market. And, you know, you look at, obviously, iPod sales skyrocketed and became an enormous part of the overall business um, during the iPod era, you know, sort of 2000 to 2007 before the iPhone came along. Um, but the other thing that happened was that, you know, Mac sales went up dramatically uh, during that same period. You know, I mean, it's it's yeah. it really benefited, it had this halo effect that benefited the whole business. You know, they were selling what, a million Macs a quarter roughly back in the year 2000. And by the time that the iPhone came along, it was at 2 million. You know, it basically doubled Mac sales. And of course, the iPhone accelerated that significantly. And they've been selling, you know, upwards of 4 and 5 million some quarters now. But, you know, the iPod itself um, had a big impact, but it also just trained a lot of people to like Apple and to expect other things that they would do to be equally good. And, you know, that, that laid the groundwork for the iPhone in many ways, um, you know, from a cons customer perception perspective, not just from a sort of a hardware and sort of technology perspective. Well, let's move on to the last story, which is Adobe announcing end of life for Flash. And technically what they've announced is that come 2020, they will stop updating uh, flash with new versions and they will stop distributing it so they will stop making it available for new downloads as well which means for all intents and purposes people won't uh, install flash anymore but of course there will be lots of computers out there that already have flash installed uh, and there will likely frankly be many websites out there that have flash uh, elements as well um, you know even at this point there are many alternatives out there that perform better that are more user-friendly on mobile devices and so on uh, that uh, could be replacements for Flash, and yet there are lots of websites that still rely heavily on Flash. And during earnings season, I'm always reminded of that because the vast majority <laughs> of earnings calls that I join use the same Flash-based uh, player for the actual earnings call. And uh, there's really nothing about those earnings calls that couldn't be done through other means. Uh, and yet, you know, the industry standard seems to be something that's based on Flash, and so that's what you have to use. So it's you know one of the few times that I use Chrome instead of Safari on my uh, MacBook Pro, um, but you know this is a long time coming. You know it's ten years symbolically since the iPhone launched, and the iPhone launch without Flash um, was you know arguably one of the big factors that ultimately killed off Flash. Although it took a very very long time for it to die, you might say. Um, but Aaron, kind of, what was your take on this whole story? I, I think the interesting analogy here is actually with Palm. No, no, sorry, not Palm Rim and BlackBerry devices. I, you know, um, when the iPhone showed up and BlackBerry was king, uh, it, the you know, the BlackBerry was a was a dead device walking, but not very many people knew it. And I think the same was true for Flash. I, I think it was, it it was, it's been in the same way that BlackBerry sort of, you know hit its peak when it seemed like it was king and then it had a pretty slow and steady death. Um, I think that's what Flash has been going through now is the same slow and steady death. It, 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 for it to really die off though, just because of inertia and, and how, you know, 
some restaurant somewhere had a Flash developer do their website for them all in Flash, and that restaurant owner now like is finally being forced to make the change, even though he or she had plenty of reasons to do it, you know, five years ago. Um, that's what, in the end, it will take to kill it off because it's just an inertia thing. It's technology that's useful, even if it's suboptimal, sticks around because of replacement costs. And and then when that's the thing that is defending your technology, <laughs> right? Is uh, mm-hmm. it, it is well, it's hard to replace, right? Or expensive to replace. That's uh, I mean, that's a terrible value proposition. And right. so. Yeah, and and Adobe realizes that too, and that's why they've moved on. I I think the yeah. other thing is what Flash was providing was always destined to be replaced by more open standards. Um, yeah, that's just the that's the that's the that's the downhill of you know water always flows downhill. The web always flows toward open standards, and it's going to always be that way. Yeah, and it's it's. You know, interesting that it was Apple, a company which, you know, has plenty of its own proprietary standards that ultimately ended up killing it off. And I think not yeah. out of any kind of philosophical thing about this being a closed versus an open standard. It was really just a usability thing for for Apple. They just felt Flash was a terrible experience on mobile devices and arguably on desktops as well, and that there were better alternatives and they wanted to kind of lead the charge in forcing it to be replaced by something else. And so it's you know, interesting that it was, you know, Apple, which, you know, has frequently been criticized for having closed platforms and proprietary technology of its own. Um, But also notable to, you know, see how far Adobe has moved on from there over the last few years as well. I mean, it's one of the kind of great success stories in terms of a pivot in business models. And, you know, just before we started recording, I pulled up the most recent 10K financial filing from Adobe just to kind of look at the numbers here. But, you know, this was a company that used to sell boxed software, you know, creative software, um, and also sell enterprise type solutions like Flash uh, to website owners and so on. And then obviously uh, make free versions of Adobe Reader and and Flash Player and so on available to consumers so that they could actually use those things. You know, if you look at their business in their fiscal 2016, 78% of their business came from subscriptions, which is, you know, their creative cloud and their marketing cloud offerings, which are now subscription-based services, you know, if you just go back two years to fiscal 2014, it was 50%. And, you know, go back another two, three years before that, it was a tiny proportion. So this very rapid shift over the last five years away from box software and all the rest of it to the subscription model and doing very well off the back of that, you know. And a good chunk of that, sort of three quarters of it is, you know, the kind of uh, creative suite and then marketing is about a quarter of it. But... Um, you know, there's businesses both growing very rapidly over the last several years. So a very successful shift. They don't need Flash anymore. I mean, I did a quick search for the word Flash in the 10K and it only showed up twice, neither of which was actually commenting on the product. They were both about other things. And so, you know, it really is irrelevant to Adobe at this point, um, but obviously still very relevant if you use video and, and interactive features online on websites. But it is finally going to go away. Other things are replacing it. And so, you know, it's, it's the end of an era in that sense. Um, but one that's uh, taken a very long time. It's a great illustration of how slowly these shifts sometimes happen in technology. Yeah, but they, you know, it, it, by in another from another perspective, you can't count on stuff staying the same for all that long. I mean, Flash was around for a really long time, um, but uh, you know, it's funny how how you it feels like you blink and things are super different. I mean, at the time when Steve Jobs wrote that letter, 
everybody was, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people were really incensed over it and also just thought Steve Jobs was wrong because Flash was so dominant. And it's a funny thing that now everybody looks back at that letter and says, of course he was right. Right. <laughs> and yet, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. the forces that were at play, like so other people saw, and but a lot of people didn't. I think the fact that, that his biggest public opponent in this, uh, Kevin Lynch, who was working at Adobe at the time, you know, is now running watch OS for Apple. Right. And, uh, you know, this stuff, I think the point is, is some of these changes are slow, but you cannot expect things to stay the same. You can't expect, mm -hmm. you know, flash to, like it was unreasonable to expect flash to be around forever. And, and it was surprising how many people acted that way. Um, mm. uh, and it makes me wonder what are the things today that we are, you know, seeing as dominant and, and, uh, and permanent that aren't anywhere close to that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point and a good note to end on as well, I think. Well, thanks very much for listening, everybody. That wraps up our news roundup for this week. Um, we hope you have a great weekend. We'll be back with more episodes next week. I um, hope you uh, have a great week in the meantime, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.